0: We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinski, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at federalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. I'm already laughing because I'm so excited to be joined by our guest, Rebecca Heinrich. She is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hey, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, I, I wish that we could have Rebecca on every day, because especially right now, your perspective is so helpful, uh, which is why, of course, you've been on Fox like, you know, every time you have your eyes open, I feel like over the last <laughs> month. Um, but it's it's important because suddenly everybody who was an expert on public health became an expert on uh, Eastern European politics. Um, but Rebecca, you actually do know what you're talking about on this particular yeah, subject. Yeah,
1: my my only expertise on having anything to do with the pandemic was don't mask my kids. <laughs> <laughs> that was all I had to really say about that, and that the virus almost certainly happened and came out of a lab in China. But that that was my expertise, the extent of it. But <laughs> but I do know a little bit about international relations and uh, and that kind of thing. So unfortunately, um, I'm doing a lot of talking about what's going on in Europe.
0: Just a, you know, just a little. Uh, so so tell us, I've seen um that well, let's start with this. We could go in a million different directions on this question. Um, what do you think President Biden is getting right and wrong in his response yeah. as of today?
1: That's a good way to start it. So, um the first thing is uh, his his instinct to avoid direct military conference confrontation with the Russians is a is a good instinct. Um and and so because of that, he there's there's certain things that he knows would involve direct military confrontation. So the no fly zone, that is just that 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 means that that the United States would be shooting down Russian warplanes. So that's I mean it's you know I always tell people like a no fly zone is not a force field. <laughs> A no-fly zone means you're going to have pilots up there protecting airspace and engaged in combat. So that is right. Um, I think uh, the the President Biden's um, desire to want to bolster NATO and and really kind of keep as a priority uh, the fact that NATO is is something that we are going to absolutely defend a NATO country. If it gets attacked, they're going to invoke article five and, and we are going to come to the defense of NATO. It's important to send that message to, to, to convince the Russians that would be a mistake. So that's, that's really good. And then, then there's been some important things that he's done to, to bolster NATO's defenses. Um, Unfortunately, I think what he's gotten wrong is he's so, so determined not to have military confrontation with the Russians that he, he is, risk averse in general. So he is, he is saying what the United States will not do. Well, not only will we not do a no-fly zone, but we're not going to provide them, you know, the Russians, the surveillance and targeting data that we, that we need. We're not going to, you know, send certain kinds of, you know, warplanes um, that belong to the Poles. We're not going to, you um, send you know we were late in sending um anti-aircraft the the stingers until the latvians and the lithuanians wanted to do it so we were there's lots of things that we're not doing that we could be doing that are completely reasonable and it would actually you know cause the russians to think that that maybe these other acts of aggression aren't going to be worth it or expanding the war wouldn't be worth it and so the president's you know risk aversion is is having the unintended effect of actually thinking, you know, causing the the Russians to think they can do more and not less. And so I think that that's having a cascade of other problems.
0: I'm really glad you just put, you described this as risk aversion, because that put into words something I was going to ask you basically to try to put into words. And my question then is, is this insufficient response, this risk-averse response, indicative of deeper problems or a an ideology that's taken root in the democratic establishment or even the political establishment, in the, the neoconservative political establishment that's uh, dangerous in some way.
1: So I think there's one ideological impulse that is very much happening. And that is this idea that it's American strength that is provocative, that if it's if we if we are doing something, that we are the ones that are causing violence and and that American, um, uh, you know, just wielding of military power, of hard power, of of you know veiled threats and you know the those kinds of things that that is actually the the thing that is causing other countries to just perfectly reasonably acting out and and that is definitely that's something that has existed for a long time on the left but now you're sort of seeing it in in some corners of the um, kind of the thought leadership uh, right side of the of the spectrum that you know that basically it's Joe Biden's insistence on not going to war that's protecting the American people from being dragged into World War III. that is just a narrative that is not based in in the in facts but I also think there's something about President Biden that has just been this way for decades. And that is that he gets something in his mind, and then he actually is very inflexible in, in changing his mind. He doesn't, he's not a pragmatic, adapting kind of guy. So when things don't go well, you can have an idea about what you should be doing. But if if your idea isn't working, you've got to be willing to change course, to do something different. And and we saw this in Afghanistan where when things Started going very very badly for the president. He he just went MIA. His his course was just to kind of plug his ears and let the whole thing roll over him, and then he kind of came up after forty eight hours to talk to the American people. It's just a very inflexible unwillingness to adapt, and and I think that we're seeing that play out in in the war against Ukraine as well. Um, and so there, those two things. It's just this like you know it's not one. There's this idea of you know in when there is a crisis. The, the country, if there's two, two countries in a crisis, the country that is completely unwilling to escalate at all is the country that loses. The other country has got escalation dominance and they just have their way. And so the Russians are the ones that are adapting. Every time a Biden official comes out and says we're not going to do something because we don't want to escalate, the Russians then add to what they are willing to do, you know including nuclear saber rattling, and then they do more and it's happened you know from the from the right before, from from the invasion on we continue to see this almost in real time kind of daily this back and forth
0: there was um, a a very I think instructive moment a couple of weeks ago when Adam Kinzinger said you know we're all very breathless what's what what he was he basically was like what's with the breathlessness about nukes um, but I actually want to ask you if if there's a point to that that you might agree with that we seem to be flinching uh, perhaps and I'm not saying this is the case but it's a it's an argument a lot of people would make that we're flinching in the face of of Putin's um, aggression and that you know we should we should be bolstering NATO. Know, even more strongly, um, is there legitimacy to that point uh, at all?
1: Well, I get a little bit Kissinger. Your um, Kissinger, <laughs> Kissinger. Unfortunately, Adam if you, Kissinger. <laughs> Adam <laughs> Kissinger. Uh, if only. You know the problem with the, the him though is it's too. It's like you shouldn't be cowboys with nuclear weapons either. I mean, this is right. a serious business, and so I get a little bit uncomfortable when people say, you know. We need to um, just—I don't know. It's it's basically the way I think about it is: we we should not, we should not brush it off like it's nothing. Nor should we, and and thinking that the Russians are bluffing. Nor should we um, be intimidated by it. It is, it is, it is a. What what I've argued is the response should have been. When the Russians start, I mean, first of all, the Russians are very serious about their nuclear weapons. They they think about nuclear weapons totally differently than we do. We think about them as weapons of last resort. We think about mutually assured destruction in the Cold War. If you launch a weapon at us, we launch a weapon at you, and then like that's what keeps everybody in check because nobody wants their cities to be you know go up in a mushroom cloud. That's kind of that's how we have thought of. That's how Americans kind of think and associate with nuclear weapons the Russians since the Cold War, they've been investing in what we call these theater range nuclear weapons. so they're lower yield and they're made to to, to be used in theater and and there's there's Russian doctrine um, that would that has led American analysts to believe that Russians have this idea of in in the event that they are losing a conventional war, so a non-nuclear war against Europe and NATO countries that they would, launch a low-yield nuclear weapon so that NATO America Europeans would say oh my goodness a nuke forget it you can have it and just cede it all to them because and that we wouldn't retaliate because it would be the, for the fear of of it kind of escalating and turning into nuclear Armageddon and and so what I have argued is I mean that is that's how the Russians think about it and and so in order for us to, deter them from doing that because obviously any nuclear weapon is just horrific i mean as low yield as you get it would be horrific and we don't want any country to cross the nuclear threshold no matter how low the yield what we should be doing is conveying to the russians that we would not simply cede the entire thing to them and that we do have weapons that are credible and would offer a proportional response on the ready in theater and were willing to use them. And it's this paradox about deterrence, but you have to do it. You have to be willing to do it. Otherwise, you unintentionally actually incentivize the Russians for to, to, to do that very thing. And so what I argued when the Russians started doing this nuclear saber rattling over Ukraine, I'm like, man, now is the time to just steady hand, cool heads. I wanted the president to or even you know Secretary Austin to issue a statement saying you know the nuclear saber rattling is irresponsible, but the the United States also has nuclear weapons and we remain, um, ready to defend the American people and our interests, and any employment of nuclear weapons would be a mistake, you know, which is something like that. But in and, and that we should have just continue uh, NATO military exercises that involve nuclear capable delivery systems, just don't flinch, don't, you know, just don't flinch. And instead, what the Biden administration <laughs> did, they like. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Everyone wanted to just downplay it, not talk about it. And then we had a long-planned test of a, of a missile that we, that we can put nuclear weapons on it. Long-planned test. The, new, the, the Russians have known about this test for months. And instead, Kirby goes out and says, we're not going to even test it So, because we don't want to provoke the Russians. No, like now it's like you, you're basically confirming the Russian view that we are so squeamish about this, that we are intimidated. Right. And I mean, it was just, I couldn't, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that that I mean, what would the best response to that kind of nuclear saber rattling is to just hold the line steady as she goes, don't flinch. And, and you have to have kind of a steely, you got to steal your backbone about this, this kind of thing, because you don't want to um, you make them think that that would be worth it for them to do that.
0: The Washington elites strike again, asleep at the switch as the markets fluctuate, losing Americans hard-earned money, Seems like it's time to look for places to invest with a little less Washington in the mix. How about an asset that's been around for 277 years? I'm talking about fine art. Not many people know, but returns in the contemporary art market specifically have outpaced the S&P 500 by 164% from 1995 to 2021. So it makes sense why the ultra wealthy have been hoarding it for centuries. But now there's a startup called Masterworks that's allowing access for all just as investors are looking for new areas to diversify into, too. And how they're doing it is changing the game. They enable you to buy shares that represent an investment in a specific artwork so you can invest in multi-million dollar paintings without needing the multi-million part. And Federalist Radio Hour listeners get special priority access. Just go to masterworks.art slash federalist. That's masterworks.art slash federalist. And see important Regulation A disclosures at masterworks.io slash cd. So I'm wondering how you would describe the role of... um, Well, let's just say, how much do you think Putin's decision to invade Ukraine was specifically related to, and I'm not saying this as a leading question, I'm I'm actually just curious, was specifically uh, related to uh, his perception of American weakness and his perception of sort of Western weakness?
1: I think it's related. I mean, I think that there is, I definitely think, now I want to be clear when I say Afghanistan, there are very good sound reasons for not, and I've argued for them for shrinking our mission in Afghanistan, for for ending all of the nation building extra you know, work and and just going to a counterterrorism mission um, out of Bagram. You know, there should be a pragmatic there, there's plenty of um, policy disagreement on a spectrum of what we should be doing on there, which would have been reasonable, I think, American um, decision making that wouldn't make us seem like we're totally weak and making just terrible decisions. The the thing that was terrible in Afghanistan was the way um, the way President Biden withdrew absolutely terrible ally management, unwillingness to adapt, extremely afraid of get of of the um, of of having to send in more troops. Um, just the whole thing was just handled so terribly. And it really did signal and, and the president's messaging on it was. I'm not sending one more person, you know, I'm not sending one more American troop to do this. I'm not going to get involved. It was just a, it was a very, he conveyed an unwillingness to fight kind of generally right now. And, and so I definitely think that the Russians were watching that and thinking, wow, this is, this is, um, we're in a moment right now where we don't have strong American leadership and, and we have intense war weariness generally. Not not American weariness with bad war fighting, with with uh, terrible mismanagement over missions that aren't directly related to American national security, but really conveying this war weariness generally, which is I don't think where the American people are. But that's the message that was conveyed. So I think it was that. And I know this from talking to allies. You know, I've had I've had these private meetings with you know with other um, uh, nationals from other ally countries, and they they were very concerned for all of those reasons with the way that that Biden withdrew from Afghanistan. You know, where was is the United States committed, and is the United States reliable, and are we willing to actually um, stay engaged and defend American interests abroad? So I think it was. I think it definitely had something to do with it. I mean, how could it not? I mean, it, it's, it was just, they're so closely related. And and frankly, Joe Biden is demonstrating the same kinds of characteristics right now with the war in in, in Ukraine that that we saw his instincts play out in, in Afghanistan in terms of his inflexibility, unwillingness to change course when things aren't going well, et cetera.
0: Well, and let's talk about uh, China, a favorite topic of yours, Rebecca. Um, it, it strikes me as our our unwillingness to really hold China accountable, let's say for the pandemic um, is in this vein as well. And I want to ask you about developments regarding Putin's relationship with President Xi, Russia's relationship with China. Um, what do you see going forward from that? How, how worried are you about uh, the potential for that particular alliance?
1: So very concerned. I mean, this is kind of <laughs> night, nightmare. This is like nightmare scenario that, right. So, um but and so, you know, one of my concerns with, I, I believe that China is the number one threat to um, to the United States and our way of life. They they have the greatest ability to to, to truly. Um, to, tr- to truly harm—not just harm, but to—but to end American preeminence and to uh, negatively affect American culture and our way of life, and to to change what what it would mean for the way my children even grow up in the United States. And so, I—they are the number one threat. They have the greatest. Um, capacity to do harm, both because of the size of their economy and because of the way they're investing in it, and, and that to, to include their hard power, their military power. So it's a, it's a serious concern of mine. So, you know, I, I, the other piece of this, so the Afghanistan, we talked about that, the other piece of this that, that um, was a, was a big sign that things were not going to go well and that Russia was going to launch this massive invasion in Ukraine was the fact that that Putin went to, to Beijing um, during the Olympics to talk to Xi Jinping and the two of them announced that they had this deep friendship and there were no limits to it. And then they sign, you know, they have this deal, not just on energy, but on agriculture, which would enable the two countries to weaponize the global food supply chains, as well as the energy, as well as energy. And and those are the, and so I'm watching that happen. And I had written a piece that said that, you know, Putin's, you know, decision about what he was going to do in Ukraine was probably going to happen in Beijing. And that's, we know now that is what happened. Essentially, it was you know it seems as though that 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 G is the one that 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 greenlit Putin to launch this invasion. And so I see these people saying like, oh no, you know Xi Jinping is going to be so disappointed and think he has buyer's remorse with with you know associating himself with the Russians. I don't see that at all. The Chinese have not distanced themselves from the Russians at all throughout the course of this war in Ukraine. If anything, it just it continues to. Um, serve China well because the United States is focused on this major crisis and trying to prevent a larger war in Europe, and, and that gives them an opportunity to learn about how the United States and our allies are going to respond and how they can adapt. And, and And it gives them, I think, a strong hand to play on the global stage, stronger hand, and um, and possibly gives them, you know, uh, more opportunity to to do all kinds of nefarious things in the Pacific.
0: Yeah. And and what could that, let's then talk about Taiwan. Um, does our response in Ukraine matter for how China is looking at Taiwan?
1: I think it does. I think that there are still some things that are very, very different. So, you know, I've um, I've there's this buzz among some national security analysts that says, oh, this is going to be, you know, how the, the U.S. the U.S. and the West has united with these hard sanctions against Russia. That's going to be a deterrent for for China and i'm like i don't know about that guys there it's much easier to sanction the poor bully which is really what the russians are relative to china which is the rich bully yes and <laughs> and and we're so dependent um in, you know on the on the on the Chinese economy, and we were so integrated, it's much, much more difficult. And that's why I keep I'm like I keep looking at Elon Musk. Elon Musk has been so great at, you know, sending Starlink into the Ukrainians, and he's really pulling for the Ukrainians and, and doing all these things, um, which are wonderful. But I'm like, all right, Elon, now let's, how are you going to take on China? And I don't see Elon Musk taking on China um, anytime soon. And, and so that, to me, is a little clue about how difficult it's going to be for these companies. Companies to to do hard things on with China, so so there's that that one piece, um, you know. I I think. Uh, A possible silver lining is, you know, Europe might be able to to continue now that they're going to arm more, they're going to increase their defense spending, especially in the case of the Germans. There is an opportunity here that Europe can be more serious about collaborating together to provide for their a greater share of defense of Europe, which could free up the United States to lead better and to invest our military capabilities in in the Indo-Pacific. But all of this is a matter of timing. I mean, we are on a really short timeline and, you know, if we had 100 years to figure it out, maybe we would, but we don't. Our window is like five years. And, and so um, I, just don't, I just don't know if we're going to be able to, um, you know, do the right things and learn from what's going on with Ukraine to make a, a fast enough shift to deter, you know, Chinese aggression against Taiwan. I, the one big thing I think that might be useful here is the Taiwanese should look at this and say, holy smokes. We need to be, no kidding, doing everything we need right now to fend off a Chinese invasion. You know, Taiwan is never going to be able to take the Chinese military on head to head. I mean, nobody makes that argument. But what the Taiwanese have to do is basically look at what Ukraine is doing, which is say, how can we make it as miserable as possible on the Chinese so that they just don't think it's worth it? You know, at least not today and not tomorrow. And every day you make them conclude it's not worth it to, to take Taiwan. And so Taiwan needs to be really Spending more of their resources on buying American um, military equipment, and also the kinds of weapons that we've been telling them they need—not not the fancy stuff that they want, but like the real the kinds of weapons, mines, and that kind of thing—the things that they're going to need to actually fend off a Chinese invasion. That could be a big positive lesson here, and that is something that we could help the Taiwanese do in the short run if if everybody can focus on this and and do it. You know, we need the will to do it. And, and I'm not sure that that our Pentagon and our White House is is ready to do that, but they're probably going to think it's provocative. <laughs> the Chinese is probably the, the argument that they're going to make. But now is the time. I mean, Taiwan, man, they they should be every 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 home in Taiwan should be looking for you know this to get their hands on like sniper rifles. And I am not even kidding at this point. I mean, look at what the, what the Ukrainian <laughs> families that are still in Ukraine want right now right. and whatever they want. I mean, those are the kinds of weapons that I would be looking to get if I was living in Taiwan. And
0: I'm, I feel like I'm teeing you up here, but um, It's it strikes me as interesting how we've suddenly uh, our our political elite have celebrated Ukrainian nationalism. And I brought this up on the podcast a couple of times, but I'm curious whether you think our uh, national security establishment. Um, broadly sort of shares the same nationalism anymore. It reminds me of actually a, an old like, deep cut from the Obama era when he was saying, you know, there's uh, we believe in American ex- exceptionalism, just as the French believe in French exceptionalism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I kind of feel like that very elite ideology has seeped into the highest levels of our national security apparatus. And you would know that way better than I do. Um, it seems deeply harmful, even though it's kind of abstract. But is, do, do you see that as a, a situation that's really...
1: No, I do. And I, you know, it, it kind of drives me nuts because I, you know, I want, I want everybody to be ideologically consistent. And I'm like, ah, everybody's like not being ideologically consistent with what they've been saying. You know, I think because it is, you know, you sort of have this, the national security establishment finds like American patriots, you know, overt American nationalism <laughs> or Amer- this belief in American exceptionalism as like low, and distasteful, distasteful, yes, it's just just kind of like beneath us. And and then they see Zelensky and this incredible another thing, too, that they, they think that, you know, Zelensky is this great leader in the international world order or the, you know, the the, the rules based international world. I'm like, no, Zelensky is fighting for Ukraine. And it's amazing. And these Amer- these these Ukrainian families want to live in Ukraine, and they have, they have these Ukrainian, um, they have a Ukrainian identity, and this is good, and they want to be, yes, they want freedom, their own freedom, they're not interested in being Russians, they don't want to, and even some of the Russian, the ethnic Russians, everybody thought the ethnic Russians in Ukraine would, you know, immediately side with the russians well we're seeing that they're not they're taking up arms on behalf of ukraine and so all of that is wonderful but we should see for it see it for what it is and understand the ukrainians as they see themselves and not kind of impose what we think that they're they're fighting for what it is and 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 so yes i mean i think that the national security establishment needs to do a better job of appreciating Americans as they are, and, and and the American ethos, and how Americans um, are are good to want to to love our country above all else, and and to want to prioritize it and protect it um, above above other you know priorities, and so. But this, in the same breath, though, I would say like then there are some on the right who are like, oh, this is not our problem, and they they are actually kind of disparaging of Zelensky, the you thought, know. You mean? <laughs> Pardon me? The thug, you mean? Yes. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, he's, like, so base. Don't you guys like base? Like, this is <laughs> a guy who's, like, he's, like, the basest of them all. Um, I mean, he won't leave Ukraine. Um, you know, he's, he's like, demonstrating the, you know, Thumos, this, like, spiritedness in defense of his country, something that our own American elites have have failed to have you know there are so many American elites in in the business community and in the political community they're they're happy to get rich on this you know globalism, and then they find you know and then it's they, but, but they're like embracing American decline. they're fine for the Chinese to continue to rise and they're just kind of happily you know just getting rich and until they pass away and then they just pass on their riches to their kids and they're like good luck
0: and then' they you know? in Theranos.
1: Yes. I mean, it's just it's like crazy. I'm like, do you not care? I mean, you should care about strengthening American sovereignty, American, you know, the the quality of, of the American um, uh, Democratic Republican experiment here at home and also not want the United States to be under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party or pushed around in Europe by the by Vladimir Putin, you know, with who has this grand idea of, you know, making You know, Russia great again by these imperialistic ambitions and taking over what he believes is rightfully belongs to Russia. You know, America. I mean, you know, and that's why I think polls, you know, polling shows that really the Republican base, conservative base still has these impulses of like, you know, I don't really want to be pushed around by the Russians. Oh, totally. It's like they're still they still understand that Vladimir Putin is the bad guy here. And we should be doing what we can to help Zelensky, who is the good guy here.
0: What you're saying is we need more people on the board of Burisma. Um, (laughs) 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 Uh, So, Rebecca, um, you're in high demand. I could talk to you for so long because I just love picking your brain on these issues. Um, And speaking of teeing you up, I just want to end on this note, sort of continuing to pull at this, this Madison Cawthorn, Zelensky is a thug thread, just because, um, and, and we had Andrew Bacevich on the podcast last week, um, to talk about his, his, his comparison between our invasion of Iraq and, um, Putin's invasion of Ukraine and sort of debated it and and all of that. But I want to ask you if you could give your elevator pitch to, uh, weary, Republicans, conservatives who don't understand um, why we should care, don't understand why this is our problem, um, and are, are so upset about the state of our domestic affairs that uh, they they really do want to sort of forget about this one um, and you know wish that it would get out of the cable news cycle, et cetera, et cetera, and, and don't like the guilting that's happening um, from some warmongers. What's your, what's your sort of elevator pitch as to why people still should care?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, people should care because we we've got all kinds of domestic problems at home, but we need to have a strong. We need to be safe. We need to have a strong America in order to give ourselves the time to sort out our domestic challenges, and and for the United States to be safe, the United States has got to be engaged in the world and smartly trying to impact. Now, I'm not saying that it means that we need to be war fighting everywhere, but we we are the strongest country militarily and economically. And and it's ours to try to impact what happens in Europe, what happens in Asia, um, to the extent that it gives the United States um, an advantage. And right now, the United States is still the preeminent power. And we've got countries that are trying to to take that from us. So the reason that Ukraine matters so much is Ukraine is not a uh, a member of NATO, but NATO Enables the United States to cooperate with our allies to keep peace in Europe and peace in Europe directly ha- affects the American family. I mean, I give the example of um, Ohio, Ohio trade and commerce, um, obviously, it's just it's 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 robust with Europe. Um, farmers rely on their trade, they export soybeans to Europe. So you have a trade component that allows for um, families to, to flourish economically and provide for their families. But then you also understand that chaos breeds chaos. And if it's not the United States led um, influence through NATO in Europe, it will be Russia. Or it will be China in the Pacific and the two of them collaborating. And and that portends all kinds of bad things for the United States. And and this we have this naive kind of idea that if we just don't engage um, abroad that we can just kind of throw up the drawbridge and be safe here but in you know it's not the way it works it, it's used, we we are we are more unsafe when Russia is on the march um, and of course cyber attacks is just one example but aggression begets aggression and if it's not stopped it will just continue to spread and I know that some of these things are kind of abstract and you kind of have to use your imagination to see where this goes but I mean if you ask I think just to the average American And if you feel safer now watching what's going on the news or less safe, you know, from Afghanistan and now Ukraine, and we're only just a little over a year into this administration, we have three more years of, of, you know, what kinds of other crises are ahead of us. I mean, you can see what happens because Joe Biden really has adopted this idea. Let other people handle problems. I'm going to back away and we're going to do less and we're getting a taste of that. And it's not good. And so, you know, it's not, the answer is not neoconservatism and it's not isolationism. It's, it's, it's American preeminence that we have to fight for economically, militarily, we have to get back to having cultural confidence about what it means to be American, why America is good, and why American um, leadership in the world is much better for the american family than just voluntarily ceding it to the chinese communist party and accepting american decline Um, i do not accept american decline um, and so it's just going to take a lot of intentionality and wisdom to to make sure we can hold on to it
0: you can't put the globalization genie back in the bottle (laughs) sadly enough (laughs) rebecca heinrich's uh, senior fellow at the hudson institute we're so lucky to have a slice of your time today thank you again thanks You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.